1787, a passerby asked Ben Franklin what form of government the United States would have. Franklin responded, a republic, if you can keep it. This podcast will tell the stories of the people who work for that goal. While exploring this nation's fundamental problems, our hope is to show you that, together, we can all keep the republic. I'm Srija. And I'm David. This is If We Can Keep It, a podcast for the republic. Today, we'll be interviewing Ruth Greenwood, the co-director of the Voting Rights and Redistricting at the Campaign Legal Center. At the CLC, Ruth's litigation focuses on ending gerrymandering and promoting minority representation. From the trial level to the U.S. Supreme Court, Ruth has litigated several of the most crucial cases in gerrymandering, including Gil v. Whitford and Rucho v. Common Cause. In her own words, striving for fair representation fulfills the promise of our democracy. In this interview, we want to capture the hope of that promise, as well as the efforts needed to realize it. Ruth currently lectures at Harvard Law School, teaching a course on voting rights litigation and advocacy. In her most recent publication, she argues for the importance of local government and how they can be more inclusive of minority voices. Thanks so much, Ruth, for joining us. It's great to be here. Thank you, guys. (laughs) So something that I noticed while going through uh, past interviews you've given for publications and columns was that you noted in the Sydney Morning Herald that you had a fun time explaining your Australian accent to American judges. <laughs> yep, that's my hometown rag. Grew up reading the SMH. Um, yeah, so uh, when I, it wasn't actually in in Wisconsin, um, everyone's an outsider, you know, and so they, they didn't like people from Chicago, let alone Australia. But when I went down to North Carolina and was litigating um, in this Rucho case, the, <laughs> we had to stand up, you know, and you introduced yourself, Ruth Greenwood, for the, for the Lee. Um, the, one of the judges literally said, you're not from around here. And I, I, I just said, just a bit further south. I mean, I don't know. What was this? I just, it was ridiculous. I should have thought of a better joke. But um, it was also kind of insane that that was the first thing to come out of his mouth. <laughs> um, but yes, you're correct. I grew up in Australia. Um, I am now an American citizen um, as of last year. I voted in my first election uh, in, well, in the primaries and then the general for 2020, which is pretty exciting. Oh, congratulations. What a what a pivotal election to take part in. <laughs> I know. I know. Actually, for a while, I thought I might get my citizenship earlier. And I lived in Chicago and I was like, yes, my first election is going to be the Chicago mayoral. It's an open seat. This is so exciting. And then it ended up being a Massachusetts primary where the results are pretty much foreordained. <laughs> That, that's amazing, Ruth. And uh, we want to give you and our listeners an idea of what today's interview will feature. We want to go over your experience in the courtroom as well as your views on minority representation. Um, so I guess as a lawyer, uh, how would you describe partisan gerrymandering? <laughs> um, I mean, uh, partisan gerrymandering, strictly speaking, is just where one side um, has an advantage in a redistricting plan. You know, in this country, we elect um, our legislators to represent districts rather than, the, you know, the Senate, you, you know, the whole state. But for you have a local congressional district or a state legislative district. To the extent that the overall composition of the House or the Senate or the US Congress is skewed in a direction away from where the voters actually exist, um, that is partisan gerrymandering. So easy example, in 2012 in Wisconsin, uh, 53% of people uh, voted for Democrats and yet 63% of the seats were won by Republicans. That's an example of partisan gerrymandering. 
Mm -hmm. So hearing about this, um, to me, as an average voter, it feels like gerrymandering should be a no-brainer issue, right? I mean, these politicians, if they have the power to draw the maps, they're going to draw them in a way that benefits them and only them. So I guess uh, it makes sense that it should be illegal, but why do courts have such a hard time ruling against it? <laughs> uh, good question. I would love for you to ask the Supreme Court that question. Um, no. So uh, it's true that if you survey the public about this, they are overwhelmingly um, against partisan gerrymandering because people have an innate sense of, of fairness and what democracy means. I mean, you can you can get into the questions around, well, if 60% of the voters prefer someone, should they get 70% of the seats? But the counter-majoritarian thing feels very obvious to everyone. Um, the, the reason that the Supreme Court said that they were not getting involved um, was that this was a political question better left to the elected branches. Um, now, that covers over the fact that the elected branches are skewed because of the people that were elected before drawing skewed maps so that they can stay in power and never have to get kicked out. Um, the, the other sort of more cynical view um, that my one of my co-counsel and husband, uh, Nick Stephanopoulos, uh, had was just that the Supreme Court was being really partisan about it. At the moment, um, there are oh, eight, for the 2010 to 2020 cycle, there were more places that were gerrymandered in favor of Republicans um, than in favor of Democrats. And so to strike down partisan gerrymanders uh, would essentially remove some Republican power. Um, if these, I mean, the first case that went up uh, to the Supreme Court was in 1986, and it was uh, Democrats that were gerrymandering across the country. And that was when the court said, we can get involved, but we're not quite sure how we're going to do this. Let's spend some time working it out. And with other cases where they have said that, within two years, they work it out and you're good to go, you have a cause of action. Um, but here they spent 30 years not working it out and then deciding to retreat. So you said that people almost have this, quote, innate sense of fairness and democracy. But when we see these people in the courts or in elected branches, either maintaining or creating maps that are better designed to keep politicians in power, what is the disconnect there? Why do they not also share that innate sense? Um, so you've probably heard of the group called Voters Not Politicians. I think that is a beautiful name for a group um, and it well describes uh, my position. At the same time that I was working as a lawyer for Democrats in Wisconsin, I was working with Republicans in Illinois to try to get an independent redistricting commission. And so I had the Tea Party and conservative folk retweeting me in Illinois and I had the crazy lefties retweeting me in Wisconsin. And, and it became clear to me that uh, the people who are on my side are the voters and the people that are not on my side are the politicians who are in power, regardless of their partisanship. Um, as I say, there is that overall sense that in the country, if you look at the US House, it's more skewed in favour of Republicans at the moment. But on a case-by-case -case basis, one side or the other um, has power and usually the side that's out of power um, doesn't like it. And, and, and with your question about, um, you know, the people that actually draw the maps, it's not just about... Um, power for their political party. It's just a pure self-interest thing, you know? So if you look at people who are in a 70% Democratic district, this kind of thing happens in Chicago um, or in Massachusetts actually, right? And you say, well, let's just draw that to be like 55, 56% Democratic. They're like, hell no. Well, I'm gonna have to campaign. I'm gonna have a primary opponent. Are you kidding me? I would like my very safe district. I never have to run for election. I get to do whatever I want. Now, not everybody is like that, but a very large amount of people are, which is incredibly frustrating. But I mean, maybe it's something about, I don't know, to run for office, you have to be sufficiently arrogant or something. I don't know. 
Yeah, and especially on the point that um, currently a lot of the gerrymandered maps um, favor Republicans. But there definitely is the chance that, okay, if the state legislatures flip um, in favor of Democrats, then it would be rigged against them, right? So do you think that the, the court ruling was uh, short-sighted in that, in that context? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the problem, of course, is that if these, these things change over decades, because we all redistrict every 10 years when the new census data come out, um, if it turns out in 2030 or 2040 that suddenly Democrats are gerrymandering everywhere and we still have the Roberts Court, I have almost no doubt that they will suddenly decide that it is not a political question and they need to get involved. I mean, the, the people who have spoken out against gerrymandering from the political side, Ronald Reagan, <laughs> then Bill Clinton, then Barack Obama. I mean, it's, once you're in power and your side's getting screwed over, you suddenly don't like it. Uh, so, uh, yes, I think it was incredibly short-sighted. And I hope that regardless of whether it's Democrats or Republicans that are gerrymandering, um, at some point uh, the Supreme Court does actually step in uh, for the reason that they are not elected, right? That, that That's the whole point of having, I think, this third branch. This is what, you know, John Hart Ely says, right? Maybe you don't step in for every little policy dispute, but when the political system is breaking down, you can't turn to the political leaders to fix it. It's, it just doesn't work. You espoused a, a cynical view from your co-counsel and husband that the Supreme <laughs> Court is... Um, is, is plainly partisan about it. In the wake of this election cycle in which many Americans feel like the court has been politicized, what do you think it will take for the Supreme Court to actu actually wade into this issue and make it not a political problem, but simply a problem for our democracy, one that needs to be fixed? <laughs> I mean, for this particular court, um, I think, yeah, if, I, if I'm cynical enough, I don't know so much about uh, where Justice Barrett might stand. She, she may not be partisan. She might just be uh, an originalist. Um, and there's good originalist backing for for um, for getting involved in stopping partisan gerrymandering. Um, but for the rest of them, um, I would think that if, yeah, if there were a whole lot of ge democratic gerrymanders, um, that they, they might start to get involved. This was, <laughs> there'd be various people I've talked to about what's the craziest gerrymander we could draw that we could try to get them to strike down. Um, I am still interested in fair maps, and so I don't want to actually draw them. So to the extent in which these independent redistricting commissions, these IRCs, are involving these state legislatures, at the end of the day, someone is drawing these maps. And so earlier you mentioned that you had friends or co-workers who were almost theorizing what would be the worst map that we could bring up to the Supreme Courts. And you've obviously challenged bad maps in the United States before. So I guess I have two questions at this point. What makes a bad map and what makes a good one? So the first question is easy to answer and the second is very hard to answer. Um, what makes, a, there are so many ways, oh, there's got to be that uh, book. Anyway, there are so many ways that something can be bad. Um, so the, this area, the partisan gerrymandering area is, I have said before, this is like getting Jack the Ripper out of your like city, right? Like you just get rid of the really bad thing. You may still have a crime problem and then you need to kind of work on and solve it. So uh, anything that has an extreme partisan skew one way or the other, I would describe as bad because I think that that is not democratic. Um, but there are lots of other things where you may have an outcome that some people don't like and other people like and, and the question as to normatively good comes up. Um, I'll just tell a brief story. So in um, the 2010s, I did a thing called Chicago Ideas Week, um, and it was me and then a person who had represented the Republicans in Illinois uh, when they were challenging the Democratic gerrymander in state court. 
Um, and we all did this talk for an hour about this is what you know redistricting is, this is how it works. And then Mitch had one room with, uh, and their goal was draw a Republican gerrymander of this certain section of Illinois. And my goal with the other group was draw a good government map for that same section. And we came back after an hour and Mitch said, yeah, we drew it. And then we sat around talking for 50 minutes. And I said, oh, well, we selected one county and then we spent the rest of the thing talking about what principles should we use to add another county to that first county? Um, and so to draw a good map, there are so many things to consider. Um, you know, one of the things in particular would be what what are called communities of interest that are, are very hard to define. Um, and that I have so looked forward to having these independent commissions existing so that those really positive, interesting democratic discussions can happen. You know, I want to hear from the people. I mean, in Wisconsin, there, there is a sort of backup commission and there are the people who are like, this is very inside baseball, but right, you know, Nina and Menasha have always been next to each other and always been in the same district. You know, we should stay together. And then there are other people like, but no, like Menasha is really growing and we don't want to be with those Nina people anymore. And so that discussion I really like. And I do like the idea of a citizen listening to that and then deciding, well, based on all the feedback, this is what we think is a good idea. Um, you know, maybe we get that in the independent commission states. Does that imply that every every IRC, if they were to have these positive democratic discussions, would come to different conclusions as to what community means to them? Uh, almost certainly, yeah. Um, and I, I had to testify before the um, the Wisconsin Commission. So the governor set up a commission and selected people from across the state, try to have, you know, partisan balance. And they kept saying to me, okay, well, so what should we do? Like, what's a community of interest? What's a definition? And I was like, there are many definitions. I can point you to some examples. You should really talk to your people about what you should do. Um, you know, like I don't want to be given the examples. I'm not from Wisconsin. Um, I, you know, I, I guess I, I play the outsider pretty well. Um, but, you know, I, I, it, what is used in California is going to be different to what gets used in Wisconsin or Michigan. Um, and, and I guess the other thing when you're asking about uh, what is a good map versus a bad map, I don't think that there is only one good map. Um, there are probably hundreds of thousands of good maps. Um, and the question will just be within that massive range, maybe billions, I don't know, I don't know the math well, but within that group, um, which one is appropriate given all the things that, you know, we the commission have heard and seen. Um, yeah, the, the, the main um, place where you get down to good versus bad is when you have competing criteria. So if you make a choice always to advantage one partisan side over another, I would say that's going to be a bad map. If you make a choice to advantage white people over non-white people, I would say that's a bad map. Um, you know, when it comes down to communities of interest, uh, you can still get the wrong thing, but, it, you know, there's something about trying to respect communities that is good. Of course. And on the topic of communities, we can talk a little bit about Gilvy Whitford. So with that court case, you weren't just um, a lawyer, but you were a part of the movement in Wisconsin of bringing gerrymandering into the spotlight. So how did that whole movement, um, how did that court case um, get started? <laughs> yeah, so I um, actually, Nick, my husband slash co-counsel, um, had, well, no, no, so before that, let me really start it off. So in Chicago, I was chatting with Nick and he was saying, litigators are idiots. You never read any of the social science. Um, they have really good ideas in political science for how you could do things. And I was like, okay, wise guy, what should I be doing? Um, and one of the things he suggested was um, using this 
metric that Eric McGee had uh, developed. And Nick had just been on a panel with Eric and thought he was really smart and read his thing about the wasted votes differential, as it was then called. Then we were having dinner in Chicago with another friend who was at a foundation, the Joyce Foundation. And um, and I was like, yeah, you know, Nick thinks that I should be litigating using social science and I'm going to try to read this stuff. And he's like, oh, that would be something we could fund. And I was like, well, this is interesting. Um, maybe maybe I could actually get funded to do good things in the world. Anyway, uh, so then George told Nick, you should write a memo. And Nick doesn't write memos. He started out with a memo and it turned into a 70-page law review article, um, which... Uh, got shipped around as part of the peer review process. Eventually, Bill Whitford, former law professor from the University of Wisconsin-Madison, had it, looked at it and said, brilliant, this is it, this is how I'm going to fix Wisconsin, called up Nick. And I and Nick's like, okay, sure, but I don't litigate, I'm bringing Ruth. And so I went to this little meeting with a bunch of really well-meaning, amazing people who had been meeting for like a year or two, trying to work out what they could do about the gerrymander in Wisconsin. And it became clear that um, not just the lawsuit, but what they needed uh, was a spotlight on this because I, I feel like over the time that I've been litigating this, I've been learning more about movement lawyering as well. You have to be ready for when you lose as well as when you win. And even if you win, you need to be ready to implement the win. Um, and so essentially one of my great coups was to convince the Campaign Legal Center to take me on and this case so I could have Jerry Hebert, you know, 40-year trial lawyer, argue um, at trial, and then Paul Smith argued the case in the Supreme Court. Um, I feel like I, I was like the dog that brought home the best bone for my Wisconsin plaintiffs. <laughs> um, and so as part of that, we had a whole communications team that were able to say, well, let's, this is, this is outrageous. We need to tell people about it. Um, and well, I started out telling people about the numbers and that didn't work so well. So we tried to move into stories. I think that um, earlier when you were mentioning that partisan metric, the one that your uh, co-counsel and husband, as we've come to call him throughout this interview, <laughs> um, created, this metric is supposed to be a math mathematical and, as you say, social science way of looking at this issue to determine whether a map has been gerrymandered. And you told us that that person in Wisconsin said, this is great, this metric, we can use it and we can, quote, fix Wisconsin. But looking at how the courts have received such such metrics, I, I recall something that uh, Chief Justice Roberts said when he, looking at these things, he called it sociological gobbledygook. Why the difference in outlook between certain justices or perhaps certain courts, uh, court judges versus those people who think that this this way we can fix these states. Yeah, there is a few things going on there. So the first thing is that um, because I was getting admitted to the Supreme Court that day, I got to have a guest and my family are far, far away. So I took Eric McGee as my guest um, to the oral argument in Whitford v. Gill. And then at one point when they started talking about, one of them was like, who's this plucky young researcher? Um, and Eric is not such a young man anymore. He's like, I'll take it. Thank you, Justice Alito. And then and then John Roberts says, this sociological gobbledygook. I was like, oh, sorry, Eric, maybe I shouldn't have brought you. Anyway, um, uh, so there's that. The, the other side of this, though, is that um, uh, John Roberts is no fool, right? He is educated at the best institutions. I read one of his biographies. His wife is a mathematician, right? This man understands numbers. Um, I think that one of the things that happens at um, oral arguments is that the justices are speaking for the press um, and trying to get their argument out there so that it gets reported in the press. It, I mean, partly it's their way to argue with each other. Um, and so what he was saying there is, isn't just the man on the street gonna say this is sociological gobbledygook, how can you tell me this relates to democracy? Um, 
the and I guess it's true to the extent that you have to use a formula, you know, to do it. But if you say to anybody, hey, I think a bunch of these seats are going to be won by Democrats and another bunch are going to be won by Republicans, we get that. People go into 538 and polling and all the rest of it all the time. Um, so, uh, you know, there, I mean, one of my favorite examples um, for explaining this to people was, you know, like I, I don't, if I go to a trial about speeding, I don't say, well, wait a second, it's very confusing how that speed camera works. I just accept the speed camera works and it tells me I'm speeding, right? And so here, something like the efficiency gap, um, which was one of the metrics that we used, tells you that there is a large partisan skew in favor of one party. Um, maybe one of the flaws in our litigation was to focus too much on the fact that newer metrics could explain this in greater detail. Um, the, the other reason that Bill Whitford thought that this would really help in Wisconsin is that one of the early drafts of the article had Wisconsin as one of the biggest outliers. Um, and being able to say my state is the worst is a weird competition that people have in with redistricting plans. Um, I think it turned out to be the fourth worst in the last you know 40 years. Um, but, but that was his thing was, hey, to the extent we can rank lots of states, we are actually able to say to the Supreme Court, how much is too much? Because un until our cases, they were saying, look, a little bit of advantage from one side or the other, you know, you can expect that. It's just the extremes that we want to catch. And so we thought, well, this is the way that we can show what is extreme versus what is just a little bit of an advantage. I mean, as far as I'm concerned, you know, you shouldn't be having partisans draw these maps to advantage themselves anyway. But in a world where you only want to get extremes, sure, we can identify extremes. Right. So these um, partisan metrics, they they provide a lot of a concrete evidence for when a, a partisan a gerrymander is occurring in a state. Um, and uh, going off of this uh, idea of soci sociological gobbledygook, like, um, even if it was for the press, do you think there was some kind of um, implication of anti-intellectualism uh, in that statement? As in, um, okay, like... Uh, the math is being used to uh, make this case uh, more elitist or intellectual than how it really impacts people on the ground. Maybe. I don't know. It depends how cynical you are about <laughs> Chief Justice Roberts. As I say, I don't think that he found it confusing in actual fact. Um, interestingly, the, um, the sort of American Society of Sociologists wrote to um, the Supreme Court after that saying, we'd be happy to give you a, you know, a course on, on social science, gobbledygook at any time, you know, to explain it to you. Um, but I, I do think it's a good point that um, the Supreme Court, one of the things that we see with all of it, I mean, it, it only gets hard cases, right? It gets hard impact precedent setting cases. Um, and to the extent that cases are, uh, sort of survive and precedents continue through, it is often that they happen once public opinion has shifted to a certain degree. So that is, um, you know, when I, when I teach this, right, Roe v. Wade was a little bit ahead of its time and it's constantly debated today, right? I don't know that the country um, was ready to, you know, to strike down abortion laws across the country in, in 1973. Whereas once you get to Obergefell where, um, um, you know, marriage equality has made the law of the land. Really, the whole country was, there was way more than 50% support for that by the time that happened. And so it hasn't been as controversial to use. Similarly, like the one person, one vote cases, I mean, the, the numbers were outrageous, right? It was like 100 people in this district and 7,000 people in that district. And, and you don't need any understanding of math to get that they are very different numbers. So in the, by the 1960s, um, the court will step in. Um, I'm sure it's not the case everywhere. I'm sure you can point me to examples where, you know, public opinion moved at a slightly different pace. Um, but but to the extent that um, 
science has become a partisan issue. Um, I, I guess that's right. I guess that's one way to use um, it's almost, you know, like a, a dog whistle to be like, well, I don't know about all this science in your case. Um, I don't know that I should will ever apologize for using science. Right, right. And uh, honestly, I think that's such an unfortunate trend that we're seeing in uh, modern politics. But yes, thanks for clarifying that. You bring up a, bring up issues of almost evolution over time that you know, in Roe v. Wade, it was ahead of its time, but now it's being debated in a different context. And that brings to mind how there are certain issues that, of course, over time are going to gain different nuances and different lights because of recent crises. And that brings to mind minority representation, especially in the wake of Black Lives Matter, George Floyd. And I know that looking over your biography and the work that you've done, that minority representation is something important to you. And so... It is, it is. I'm just having this um, slightly sad reaction, David, because um, one of, um, on, the, on the CLC uh, board, one of our board members is a critical race theorist, he's brilliant. Um, and we were talking about what strategies we should have with the new Supreme Court. And he was like, I, I just think that they're not gonna be receptive to you know arguments of racial equality. We need to do something else. And I was like, you are a critical race theorist. I can't believe it. You know, like you, I get it. He's right in reality, but I don't wanna be the person who's bowing to that. Like the, the idea that you wouldn't go in and say that we need to care about black lives because they're not considered sufficiently you know, equal to white lives is crazy to me. I don't know. I just lose cases all the time. So what do I know? <laughs> well, I think there's a certain hope there and optimism that I I certainly carry. And I hope that many of our listeners would as well. Hearing that a critical race theorist is on the more cynical side at the moment is, is a little disheartening for sure. But it also, it brings to mind what you began your most recent publication with. You, you quoted John Stuart Mill. And just, just to read it, it says, it is, it is an essential part of democracy that minorities should be represented. No real democracy, nothing but a false show of democracy is possible without it. So why did you choose this quote? You know, partly I liked that uh, John Stuart Mill isn't seen as a, you know, firebrand lefty, um, and yet he cares about this. Um, and so I thought that other people should too. Um, also, um, I just... One of the things that I hadn't appreciated before coming to America, and maybe this makes me like a white person who lives in the suburbs or something. In Australia, I had this view of, I, like, there was Martin Luther King. And then, you know, I knew about Rodney King in the 90s. I didn't even really get that um, the um, OJ trial was more was about race. I thought it was more about celebrity, right? And, and, and I just didn't appreciate racial cleavages in the country. And when I turned up in 2008, I was all excited because Obama was this amazing person um, and also is black, not appreciating that one of the most important things about him from a purely um, uh, role model perspective is that he was a black American getting elected in a, you know, a, a white man's world of all, all of the presidents. Um, and, and it was interesting to me that the way that I appreciated him through his time in office um, was different to how my family in Australia, who are honestly kind of conservative, they just really liked him because he seemed so sensible compared to so many people that come out of America. Um, and they were just, you know, so impressed. Whereas I was both had all of that, but then also, you know, was impressed that he had overcome so much that I could understand a little bit more of from having been here. Anyway, so having seen that, um, I also spent a lot of time in particularly in, in Chicago, in, in the suburbs, it's just full of white people on councils. And um, 
you know, I am a white person who knows that I, there are lots of things I don't know and that I don't need to just, you know, assume that I know them. I need to actually get people in the room with me <laughs> to help me to understand what's going on. Um, and so it just made a lot of sense. Also, I was really influenced by Lani Guinea's book. Um, and I guess similarly there, I wasn't tarnished by any, you know, 1990s debates over, over her and whatever was said in the media. I just read this book and thought, oh, my goodness, she's amazing. We, we should make her run everything. Um, so, yeah, so I care about minority representation and it, it seems important to me. <laughs> right. And I can only imagine how important it is to you. Um, I believe you put Illinois' fourth district on your wedding cake, right? Yes, indeed. I'm so happy that you do not call it um, a, a gerrymandered district. Uh, so this was, uh, <laughs> um, well, I didn't really want a cake initially, but it came as part of the package. And so I was like, oh, man, we're going to have a wedding cake. What are we going to do? And I was chatting to one of my mentors, Nate Persley, but also Richard Rafalt, who's a, a law professor at, at Columbia. And he's like, ha, 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 what are you going to be? Nick and Ruth combining communities of interest. And I was like, ha, 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 yes, yes, I'm definitely doing that. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so having thought of the tagline, Nick and I were talking about what we should we should do. And anyway, we ended up choosing our favorite district. And, and it is, has been good for explaining to people um, why the Illinois 4th looks weird, but is not a gerrymander. Do you want me to tell you why? Yes, please. please. <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, the Illinois 4th combines the northwest side of Chicago, which is a historically um, Puerto Rican neighborhood, with the southwest side of the city of Chicago, which is a historically Mexican-American neighborhood. And in order to not upset the uh, majority black district on the west side of Chicago that for many years has been represented by Danny Davis, it draws a connection between those two sections by a big loop. And so it gets called the earmuffs district. Um, and when I first saw this, I had the initial reaction that everyone has, which is like, uh, earmuffs. And then I was like, this is genius. They managed to pull together communities to allow them to elect their candidate of choice. And they elected Luis Gutierrez, who having been in Chicago, I've seen him speak a few times. He is hilarious and amazing. And I was like, this is great. If this is what crazy looking districts that actually combine communities do, I love it. Um, and so we ended up putting it on our cake. <laughs> How did the cake taste? Uh, it was chocolate. So all chocolate is good as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> <laughs> I think... Uh... First of all, yes, loving chocolate. And second of all, I find it so wonderful that that your life's work would be a, a part of that next chapter of your life and being featured on that cake. And so that's that's just something of a, for me to say, but onto- uh, well, well, here's a tip for young players. I was talking to a friend about this. So I hadn't really dated any lawyers or anyone from law school or anything beforehand before I met Nick. And Nick and I started out chatting about one of his papers um, and then it sort of developed into more. Um, but it's turned out to be great because so long as you, you, I mean, I guess once you're in a pandemic situation, you work at it if you really like your husband or not. And it turns out I really like him. Um, you know, we love the work that we do. We love talking about our work. We love talking about our baby and our dog and everything. And, it, and to me, it, it is actually maximizing. So I remember people being cynical about people dating each other from the same field. But in my experience, it's worked out really well. <laughs> I love that advice, Ruth. Um, I hope our, our listeners find it helpful also. So in thinking about... Um how this this map, this this not gerrymandered district that looks so gerrymandered because it seems like an earmuff. I I wonder then what what does a gerrymandered district look like that has those racial implications? And what does it mean to those people who are in those districts, these minorities, these African Americans, Latino Americans, Asian Americans? What does that look like to them? That is an excellent question. Um, so the first thing I would say is that 
I generally don't think of how districts, I don't think uh, much like with race and ethnicity, just going by what something looks like doesn't necessarily tell you anything about the, what's going on underneath. Um, so originally the term gerrymander, right, came from Elbridge Gerry's district that looked like a salamander and it became gerrymander. Um, at that time, we didn't have all this fancy uh, political science. It's not even fancy political science. We didn't have, you know, vote totals that we could add up over time. Um, and so you weren't able to say, people could get an inkling from how it looked that obviously what his intention was, was to advantage uh, particular people or a particular side of politics. Um, today, you can have a, a map that looks quote unquote beautiful because it has, you know, square districts um, and it is still horrifying in terms of the impact that it has on the underlying communities. So for example, the map that we challenged in the Ruscio case, go have a look at it. The 2016 North Carolina Congressional District Plan Pretty nice looking districts, not weird at all. Um, yet it gave the Republicans a huge advantage in what is a very purple state. Um, but your question about being able to tell what are racial gerrymanders um, is, is another one of those areas where optimism hits uh, cynicism. So in the 90s, the doctrine of racial gerrymandering was developed actually by white people um, to who said, I was put into a district that's you know too heavily minority and it creates an expressive harm for me. Um, that term was actually coined by an academic, not the um, the court, to, to try, try to describe what they were getting at. Um, and so to me, that's that's insane. Like, I very high, I have lived in majority black districts. It's fine. I'm cool. Um, but um, in the 2010 cycle, the civil rights community kind of reclaimed these um, racial gerrymandering claims uh, to what I think is more accurately what they are. So in Alabama, they were drawing districts and they said, well, what is the percentage black according to the last, like when we put the new census data on the districts, what's the percentage black in all of them? We have to draw that district to be exactly the same again. And so that chooses arbitrary, you know, numerical targets rather than looking at communities and what communities on the ground actually want. And I agree, right, there might be a little bit of disagreement here and there, but at a place that had a 63% district that was, you know, 63% black, doesn't need a 63% district again. What it needs is people on the ground to say, these are our communities, this is how we vote together, and this is a group that, you know, that can, should be able to vote together to elect a candidate of choice. Um, so even though it's a little more confusing for the people drawing the lines, you can't just say, give me a number and I'll stick to it. You say, well, actually consider the people and try to do something that allows for their voices to be heard. Um, so I don't know where we'll, we'll go with the, the racial gerrymandering cause of action, but it's not something usually that you can look at, it's something that you need to talk to people on the ground to have an understanding of. So there's a direct connect between um, these maps which get gerrymandered and how the communities on the ground are being impacted. Can you recall um, a few issues or a few um, stories in which um, people have been negatively affected um, because they don't have representatives that listen to them or are advocating for them? Yep, I've got 40 people in uh, Wisconsin who can tell you their life stories. <laughs> um, no, I mean, some of the, the best examples, the thing that is interesting here is they didn't come to me and say, this is my, like, explain, they didn't explain this. And then I was like, oh, great, the, the issue is redistricting. This came out after we, you know, honestly, a couple of years of litigating and talking about people's lives and what was happening and then realizing, wait a second, I think the reason that happened is because of the gerrymander. So the, the person I'm thinking of is uh, Wendy Sue Johnson, who lives up in Eau Claire, which is in the northwest of um, Wisconsin. And she had been on the local school board there. And so Eau Claire, the city is fairly uh, democratic and then the area around her is fairly um, Republican. 
And so what they had done until 2010 was all the school boards in the area would get together and meet with the various legislators from the area. So there were some Ds and some Rs to talk about what they wanted the state legislators to advocate for them for down in the capital in Madison. Um, because there were issues of, they were a much more rural area. And so, you know, how education funding and other policies affected them was different to like Milwaukee and Madison. Um, so that was fine until you have the gerrymander drawn in, in, in 2011 and the new people that got in just stopped the hearings. They just didn't have them anymore. They were like, well, we don't need to actually get elected by anybody in this area, like as in we know they're going to vote for us. There's no sense of accountability. So they just didn't listen. And so poor Wendy Sue, who cared about, you know, the school board for her son, um, had no voice in Madison anymore, not even just for herself, but, you know, for her, the groups that she represented from the school board. Um, and so to me, that was a really tangible way of understanding that when you have people that are not, account like the, the gerrymandering makes people have safe seats where they don't have to be accountable. And it doesn't just mean they can say, oh, you know, I don't care if over 60% want this or that. They didn't even bother to sit down with the, you know, the community and find out what they wanted. Maybe they ended up supporting policies that were good for the area, but maybe they didn't and they had no idea because they wouldn't even engage. Um, I mean, I, I, I can go on. <laughs> um, uh, you know, um, uh, another example um, was uh, uh, actually from the Republican side in Wisconsin. Um, one of the um, people that supported us was a former Senate Majority Leader um, called Dale Schultz, who uh, had he did whatever all of the other Republicans did, which is got sent into a room, looked at just his district and was told he had to vote for it. And so he voted for it. He then looked at it and was like, wait a second, this is really pro-Republican district and I'm kind of a moderate here. Um, and so he ended up not running again um, because he didn't think that, you know, he could get elected if he thought he was going to get primary um, from the right. And one of the th issues that he really cared about um, that was across was um, education funding. And so, you know, I talked to him about, he was doing old growth logging on his farm and he liked his guns and, and whatever else. And I was like, okay, well, these are things that I would traditionally associate with the Republican party, but he really cared about the University of Wisconsin-Madison and it being funded because he thought that that meant that you would keep, you know, really well-educated people in the state. Um, and it's, it's true, I mean, in Wisconsin, a lot of the really good people there have been through that system. Um, yet, uh, when the, the gerrymanders got in power, they just stripped money straight out of the system and started, I don't know, like taking tenure away from people and, and all kinds of things that meant that you got um, not as good professors and not as good scholarships for people to go there. And it just, it you know, evacuates the system for, for many, you know, generations. It's not just for the next, you know, few years. Um, so, yeah. You, you talk about these generations of people who will be affected because of these terrible decisions, really, of these people gerrymandering these maps, asking others to vote for them. And in your first story, you recalled someone who was elected to a school board. You talk about this, the importance of being at the local level in your most recent article about working to create a government that is more, represent more representative of everyone, including minorities. You, you write, we are all potential founders. How can we be founders? How can ordinary citizens be founders? Even when, when like in that first story, you said that person who was elected to the school board saw things not go their way. So the thing that is that that, that uh, sentence was based on was me learning more about local government law in America. There are so many places that have home rule or versions of it where the community can just get together and choose how they want to run their system, which is 
amazing, right? It's like, you know, I mean, I, I get that at the state level, you can technically do that, but it, it's a little bit harder. But, you know, with a community, it can be a, a relatively small group of people and you can throw something on the ballot. So to the extent that you don't like something that's happening, uh, you can actually, you know, make a change. Um, and the other thing that that I found from local government, and, and this isn't only, I mean, I wrote that before I was, um, you know, losing in the Supreme Court on, on federal issues. Um, but um, there are so many parts of our lives that are governed by local government. Um, I know that I had written that a couple of years after um, uh, the Mike Brown killing in Ferguson. And there was this sense that, like, how could the Ferguson, um, you know, city council be so white? And how could the, the police, um, you know, have these terrible policies when the city was so black? And it's like, well, there are all of these systems in place to disenfranchise people of colour. And so the hope was, well, look, even if we can't necessarily change federal politics or even state politics, if you can change things in your local area, maybe you can make things better for some people. So, um, you know, for Wendy Sue, the other thing she did as well as, you know, try, trying to <laughs> turn over the gerrymander um, was to be part of this um, Fair Maps initiative in Wisconsin, where I think they've now up to more than two thirds of the counties have passed efforts to support um, uh, and into gerrymandering and they're not giving up, right? It's a gerrymandered legislature, but they're trying to get it changed. The, the governor is having this backup commission. There's a chance that, you know, might go to the courts and the, the people might get a say. Um, so part of it is um, persistence. And then I guess part of it is choosing a, uh, <laughs> a warmer pool. Ruth, how um, accessible would you say the courts or litigating a map is for a community um, on the ground, um, especially if it's a minority community? I would say it is not very accessible. Um, I mean, I, I am a lawyer admitted in many states and I still find many state procedures very confusing. Um, uh, I, I hope that groups like mine um, are able to help uh, people on the ground. And it, it's not just um, litigating that is needed. The litigation comes when there's no other alternative, I like to think. And so groups like the League of Women Voters and Common Cause and the NAACP are you know, gearing up to to provide resources to people across the country so that when they see that there is something wrong in their local community, they can call someone for help. And if it's so bad that it has to be litigated, then hopefully that comes up the chain and, you know, we get to litigate that. Um, but, but if it's the sort of thing where, you know, just a threatening note from the local NAACP can help, then, then that is something that, that can be done. I mean, the sort of nice thing um, of the technology at the moment is that uh, all of the stuff that the gerrymanderers used in 2010, um, I, I haven't done this myself, but I've, I've worked with people who have put so much of that stuff online with the hope that people can match the gerrymanderers and know what's happening. So one of the websites that I run with Nick, co-counsel and husband, Eric McGee, founder of Efficiency Gap, and a few others is called planscore.org. And so you can go there and I think it's only... Um, it has all of the historical data back to uh, 1972, but for around 10 states, then we'll get it up to 50 soon. You can upload a plan and see what the partisan skew is on that plan and see what the demographics are. So the hope is that there are all of these sites out there, Dave's redistricting app, redistrict all of these places, you could go and draw a map um, and then you could upload it and at least submit that as legislative testimony. So it may not be that you can file a lawsuit, but you can submit something to the legislature or the, or the commission to say, this is fair or this is unfair and this is why. Um, the advantage for litigators is that once you've submitted that into the public record, it is easy to get into evidence in a court case. <laughs> so please, please, everybody, go and upload your plans to plan score and submit it into the legislative record. <laughs> so speaking a little bit to um, what we have uh, laid out for us uh, in 2021, um, 
it looks like a lot of these um, state legislatures that uh, would draw gerrymandering maps have failed to flip. And um, ha- what, what do you think um, is waiting for us or what kind of work, uh, what's, what's the work that's cut off for us? Yeah, well, so the good thing is there are places where there's either split control or commissions where the work is holding them to account. So places that gerrymandered last time, like Michigan and Ohio, have like fairer processes in place. Um, places like Wisconsin have split control and the hope is where there's a split, it goes um, either you force a compromise or it goes to a court and hopefully the court will care about what the, the public think. And the court may be, you know, a state court, um, probably not. I don't imagine the Supreme Court is going to get involved in drawing maps from scratch, but who knows. Um, but no, so in terms of the states that were really egregious, Virginia just adopted a commission, so it, it won't be so bad. Um, North Carolina and Pennsylvania have state actions to stop partisan gerrymandering. Um, so in a lot of places, there is actually room for a decent amount of hope. Um, places like Georgia and Texas that are one-party control are put by Republicans and places like Illinois and honestly where I am here in Massachusetts, I imagine there's going to be huge gerrymanders. Um, To the extent that I can get involved and do anything about that, you know, by highlighting it before it happens um, and and making it so unpalatable that they won't do it, um, I will get involved, you know, and that was part of the hope of of PlanScore or other things. Um, But um, I imagine there's going to be, I mean, last cycle, there were over 250 cases filed just over state house, Senate and congressional maps. I mean, there aren't even 150 of those maps. Um, so I imagine we're going to have, you know, 100. I mean, we just saw what was the 30 or 40 Trump post-election cases. I don't, you know, we'll have no shortage of, of filings. Um, the question is whether any of them are actually decent and have the possibility to go anywhere. And my hope is that for the ones that um, can actually make a difference, that they are not just a piece of litigation, but they are part of a community action to make change that has buy-in from people so that if you set up a better system, you actually have, you know, candidate training courses so that in a place that has, you know, never had people of colour feel like they can run and win, um, actually learn how to be a candidate. And so that's why I always like to try to partner with organisers on the ground so that we are developing a, a culture of democracy and, you know, and, and opposition and so on, not just, you know, here's a new electoral system, good luck to you. That's that's a, a wonderful idea. And I, the more I think about it, the more I like it. A candidate training course, creating a culture of democracy. Uh, Ruth, we have, a, we have a question that we like to, to end by asking our guests. And that is simply, what does democracy mean to you? Well, I guess it means, it means that people have a say. Um, but I guess in my life, it also means more than that because it is based around how I exist in my whole life. So it has it has deeper meaning as well. <laughs> um, but yeah, I don't know. One of, one of the great arguments I like to have with um, Nick is about uh, the people uh, writ large. I love the people. I say, put them in charge. He says, but sometimes they kind of go crazy and they choose crazy things. And I'm like, but that's what democracy should be about. So for me, I think it is about, is about the people and, and I should be able to, if the system is fair, convince people of, you know, my amazingly good ideas, or maybe they're not so amazing um, if the system is sufficiently fair. I, I think that's a, a wonderful answer. Uh, placing autonomy in the people, despite the craziness that may ensue, no matter the outcome. And believing that if we are, <laughs> exactly. yeah, believing that if we are vigilant enough and smart enough that we might create that those better systems, as you were talking about earlier, uh, 
Thank you so much. Yeah, I'd like to have you as my speechwriter. That um, that was an amazing way to rephrase what I mumbled out. (laughs) (laughs) No, no. uh, Thank you so much for for joining us. We really appreciate the time you spent. Thank you, Srija. Thank you, David. It's great to be here. Always happy to talk about democracy. (laughs) Thanks so much, Ruth. And thanks to you, listener, for joining us today. This has been If We Can Keep It, a podcast for the Republic. See you next time.